Hello, friends. Welcome to episode nine of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. As you know, this season of the podcast is dedicated to topics of faith and doubt, and we've been learning from different guests on ways to read and understand our Bibles. Last week, we learned from Dr. N.T. Wright about ways to practice spirituality through prayer, contemplation, and Bible reading. And this week, we're going to learn from Dr. Amy Jill Levine at Vanderbilt University and Dr. Mark Brettler at Duke University about their brand new book entitled, The Bible With and Without Jesus, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently. This book is an absolute gem and a helpful guide for anyone who wants to gain deeper insights into how popular Old Testament passages and themes are interpreted by both Jews and Christians. They share their academic insights, scholarship, and brilliant understandings of Jewish and Christian thinking on the Bible in an accessible and easy to understand way. And this is one of those books you can read cover to cover or dig into the specific Bible stories that most interest you, or those Bible stories that leave us all scratching our heads wondering what is going on here. This book is an absolute treasure to read and definitely one of those books you'll wanna have next to your favorite commentaries, dictionaries, and study tools. We actually cover a lot in this conversation, so I divided up this podcast into two episodes. In this episode, Dr. Levine and Dr. Brettler talk with us about the importance of empathy and growing an awareness for the different biases and filters that we all use when reading the Bible, even when trying to study the Bible objectively. They also share with us about the importance of learning how different religious traditions interpret their Bibles and why we all need to become more familiar with each other's perspectives. Here's our conversation. Um, so I wanted to start off just by asking what led you both to collaborate on this project? Because it takes a lot of work to sit down and, and write a book like this and to kind of wrestle with scripture together. Well, one of the reasons we, we collaborated on this is because we had already had a collaborative enterprise. Mark and I were the co-editors of the Jewish Annotated New Testament. And we did that in two versions so that, that we can pull together this amazing product. We knew we could work together. And they were usually on different continents helps. So Mark's usually about eight hours ahead of me. So by the time he writes an email, I won't get it for another eight hours. He's on to something else. And, and this makes for a very, very good working relationship. For the book itself, Mark's primarily a specialist in Tanakh Old Testament, and I'm probably primarily a New Testament specialist. And we were very interested in how our students who were familiar with one text or the other read each other's text differently. So my Christian students, when they see, I'm going to use the Christian term here, Old Testament, when they see an Old Testament quotation in the New, that's all they know about it. Um, for Mark's Jewish students and some of my Jewish students reading something from Isaiah or the Psalms, they have no idea what the Christian appropriation is. So we thought it would be a good idea to introduce our students to their neighbor's text, to their neighbor's interpretation. And because we had done a little bit of this in the Jewish annotated, we knew we had a rich supply of material. And just to add to that, you are great believers in loving your neighbor. So that is really what stands behind this book as a whole in terms of the importance of this venture. And we're also well-versed in traditional Jewish methods of um, understanding or grappling with biblical texts and traditional texts. And the standard method is to really do a type of paired learning where two people study the same text together. And the notion is that they each sharpen each other's insights. And that very much certainly happened to me as we were working on both this book and the Jewish annotated together. Well, it is uh, fantastic that you both collaborated like this and shedding light on different perspectives on scripture 
because I, I know I shared with you in my emails that I grew up in the Protestant tradition. So I very much, the churches I attended were very much focused on New Testament. Uh, and whenever I did read the Old Testament, sometimes um, I didn't know what was going on. Like I felt lost. Um, I didn't understand the traditions. I didn't understand the culture. And so I felt very um, um, lost in the Old Testament. So I pretty much have spent most of my time reading New Testament. And as I began to become more of a serious student of the Old Testament, a lot of my own like Bible study tools and commentaries are coming from the Protestant tradition. I have like the Oxford um, commentary on the Bible. So it's pulling from a lot of this Protestant theologians kind of sharing their insights. And so I'm like looking for how can I become more aware uh, of actually how these passages maybe were better understood within the Jewish tradition because they are Jewish texts. And uh, so understanding like, authorial intent is very important to me. And so your book just helped to shine a light on like, hey, you know what? There's actually another way to look at this and actually kind of an older way to actually understand these passages. So I want to thank you both again for uh, for putting this all together. When you think about how Jews read texts, um, they're, they're actually in our book two different lenses that we're using along with a, a more general Christian lens, whether Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox. There's what the text meant in its own historical context. Um, but what Deuteronomy meant a thousand years before Jesus or thereabouts or 500 years is going to be different than what it means to the Jewish tradition in the year 300 after Jesus or the Jewish tradition today. So what we're trying to do in this volume is give the historical model, what did this text mean as best as we can reconstruct it in its original context? When Isaiah spoke, what were people hearing? And then how does the New Testament pick up some of these quotations and what did they do with them? How were the early followers of Jesus hearing those texts? And then how is the Jewish tradition over time variously hearing those texts? So we've got the historical, we've got the Jewish, we've got the Christian. So the text is not just a dialogue, it's in fact a trialogue. I like that. And that's one of the, the key messages I got from, from your book is that, like, what a beautiful way to read the Bible by understanding that there is a dialogue happening. And the Bible is, is trying to engage us with the dialogue. And it's okay to have different perspectives and different meaning coming from the text. Like, like I think about, like, uh, when I come to the Bible, I'm coming with all of my biases my own religious tradition, my own culture, and especially like growing up in Orange County, California in the 1990s with specific types of churches. Like I have all these like lenses on top of lenses. And as I've transitioned from church to church, each of those different denominations have provided a new lens, a new ray reading the Bible. And so now when I come to scripture, sometimes I can be very uh, just perplexed like, how should I even be looking at this? Because I remember my first church said this, my other churches said this and this, and then that's further complicated by, well, that's just Protestant tradition. I'm not even considering the Roman Catholic tradition or the Jewish tradition on how these texts are read. And so that's, um, I guess my first question to you both is, uh, for those of us who maybe feel kind of um, stuck when it comes to how should I even approach an objective reading of scripture, when I have so many lenses and biases that are kind of in the background, how do I kind of deal with that? And how can I kind of look at the Bible in a, in a more clear, objective way? Well, before you use the word perplexed, I don't think it's so bad to be perplexed. I mean, there's good perplexed and there's bad perplexed. I hope this book can help you and others be 
good perplexed. I think the most important thing to do, and this goes back to AJ's answer to your previous question, is just be aware of the fact that the Bible can be read using many different lenses. It's really, and just from my perspective, and I think AJ from that perspective, it's just really important to be aware of what lens you are reading it through. And that way even, uh, going back to your initial comments, you talked about another way to look at the Bible. I think what we're really trying to say is, no, there is not a single way, but there are many different ways. And we're trying also to do it in a non-polemical fashion. I think very often when different communities talk about the Bible, it was like the uh, presidential debate of last night, where everything is, a, where, where, where everything is a zero-sum game. It is either me or you. And quite truthfully, uh, throughout history, many of those discussions about what the Bible meant uh, were almost as ugly as what happened that way in terms of how vituperative and crude and crass some of that polemic became. And what we're trying to say is that there is a text. We're not sure there is a text because very often we don't know exactly what the biblical text is. I know you had an earlier podcast with Professor John Barton. I'm sure that issue came up. So, you know, one of the issues even that sometimes divides the communities is, you know, what is the text that we are talking about and how is it that different religious communities have different texts for the Bible. And, you know, we recognize that. And it's not super important for us to say, well, which text is right? Which text is earliest? Rather to understand both the diversity of the text that you have and the diversity of interpretations that you have. And sure, if you really just look at that diversity, it's very perplexing. But one of the things that we try hard to do in the book is to explain why those diversity, why that diversity exists by being very self-conscious about different lenses that could be used about the text. And I hope that will make people a little less perplexed. And a little less hostile. So that at the end they might say, well, I don't agree with that reading, but I can see where you got it. I can see the logic behind it. Um, and that's the beginning of a type of respect. We're not we're not looking for a lowest common denominator. Everybody agrees to the same pablum because that's 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 a disservice to the Bible. It's a disservice to religion and it's a disservice to brains. Um, but we are attempting to use Mark's language to get people to look through other lenses. And that can be somewhat if you change prescriptions, that can be somewhat disorienting. But when you get used to it, then you begin to see things you had not seen before. Certain things get magnified. Other things that had been magnified are now a little bit less clear. So we look at the history. We look at the various traditions. And for those people who, said, who have told us, and we've had students who have said this, the Bible has one meaning, and it means this. It seems to me that if you read the text or you're told the text when you're five years old, and then when you're 50, you get exactly the same reading. Something has gone dreadfully wrong, and what has gone wrong is not the text. It's the failure to engage the text. Um, and finally, on this general point, you had talked about how do you do this objectively? You can't. So mm. don't worry about it, because you're always going to bring your stuff in. Uh, the questions you bring to the text are your questions. That's a subjective thing. 
Um, how do you do it well is another question. So you acknowledge your lenses, you acknowledge your subjectivity, and then if you really want to appreciate the Bible, go see what somebody with whom you disagree historically or religiously, go see what that person says instead of, as we in our own culture so often do, just listen to people who agree with us. Get that conversation going and use the Bible as an opportunity to develop that conversation. And that's what we hope our book will help do. Yeah, and listening to aging, I never thought of this image before. You know, I'm, I'm in my 60s. I've had multifocals for about 10 years now. But that, I think, really is what we're talking about, that uh, imagine that you're wearing multifocals. And depending on where you're looking, the text really does look different. And in terms of some people coming in and saying the Bible has only one meaning, those are like the people, and we all know some of them, who change from two or three pairs of glasses to multifocals, and they just can't adjust. You know, we're really the, you know, the optician or the ophthalmologist who say, yeah, you know, multifocals really can work for you. Or they might take a few days to get used to them, but please try them on. Yeah, what a great analogy. And I think, I mean, I remember like my struggle early on because I was definitely raised in a tradition where it was like the Bible has one kind of story arc, one kind of meaning. And this is the way it is. And beware of other traditions or other types of viewpoints coming in to kind of tell you that it's something else because that's just false doctrine or that's heretical. And so I'll tell you that my personal struggle um, was that um, I was kind of fearful, of maybe even looking at these other traditions, or I felt like it was um, unethical or in my Christian tradition, like I shouldn't even be ex exposed to these types of viewpoints because those are obviously false. And what would be the point of even looking at these viewpoints? And so I remember even when I was in college as an undergrad, I was an English lit major. I had no problem like critiquing and studying Milton and Chaucer and Shakespeare. And I loved doing it. I loved getting into the text and trying to uh, dig in to understand what the passages were saying. But when it came to the Bible, I remember there being the course on the Bible as literature. And I remember like just staying clear from that class, like, oh, we don't treat the Bible like that. We do not treat the Bible like that. And now I wish if I can go back in time, what a great <laughs> opportunity because it could have exposed me to a different way of looking at the Bible. But I was wondering maybe if you can address maybe that resistance that some of us might have, no matter what tradition we come from, the resistance and uh, Dr. Levine, like I, I like the phrase you used, the word you used about being disoriented. Like for those that are that are feeling disoriented or afraid to kind of expose ourselves to different viewpoints, maybe some encouragement. Um, I start by noting that God gave us brains, um, and that to be told, oh no, you shouldn't ask those questions or don't go there, um, suggests that God somehow needs protection. Um, so we're going to protect God by putting up all these fences. God doesn't need the protection, right? God's doing fine. Um, uh, what we need to do is actually engage with this text. And if the text only means what somebody else tells us it means, and then we actually read it and there's a disjunct, um, then we may be um, tempted either to turn ourselves into neurotic knots, trying to make something fit that doesn't fit, or we'll chuck the whole thing and say, I can't believe it. What pastor so-and-so told me when I was six doesn't make any sense. So let me get rid of the entire Bible and, and I'll go be a Buddhist. Not that there's anything wrong with being a Buddhist. Um, so 
begin by asking those questions. Um, Jesus' disciples ask him questions. That's what you're supposed to do if you're a disciple. Uh, rabbi's disciples ask the rabbis questions, and then they get various answers depending upon circumstances. The Bible is not a one-size-fits-all document. It can't be. So one of the things we do in the book is try to pull out some of those questions that people have been asking over the centuries. When the Bible says, don't kill, using the King James language, thou shalt not kill. Well, what does that mean? Um, in war, in self-defense. How about animals? How about plants? What happens if you do? So the Bible necessarily asks questions. Um, the parables are designed to provoke questions rather than to provide all the answers. And if you look seriously through Christian history, through Jewish history, even if you take Protestant history, you take one denomination of Protestantism, whether it's Calvinists or Lutherans or, or Methodists, as you start looking through the history, it turns out that what Calvin said is not necessarily what the Presbyterian Church down the street is saying. Or what Wesley said is not necessarily what First Methodist is proclaiming today. Because stuff changes as science changes, as sociology changes, as our circumstances change. Today we're asking questions about the Bible regarding immigration. And there's lots of stuff in the Bible about immigration, but people 30 years ago hadn't been asking those questions. We're asking questions about slavery and about the translations. Is Mary the handmaid of the Lord, King James Version? Or is she the slave of the Lord, which is what the Greek actually says? So the Bible will always raise new questions. Why? Because new questions are occurring to us. And then people who are interested in the Bible will go back and say, what new information am I seeing in that interaction between me and the text? And let me go back to word resistance, which is something that we're very aware of. And you know, I'm primarily a scholar of the Hebrew Bible. AJ is primarily a scholar of the New Testament. I sort of got into the New Testament, into the study of the New Testament accidentally, but that's, a, that's another story. But I'm very, very aware of the resistance that many Jews have toward reading the New Testament. And I think, you know, had I not been so aware of that, uh, this book in the Jewish Annotated New Testament would have been written in a very, very different tone. And every time that we're talking about a New Testament passage, I, mean, I am aware of the fact that there are going to be some Jewish readers who are saying, what are these two Jewish scholars doing talking about the New Testament? You know, it's their, their meaning, not an un-Jews book. It's not our book. And something that we started really with the Jewish Annotated New Testament, and certainly before that, A.J. did in her own work, was really to develop more of an understanding for the Jewish community of the New Testament as a Jewish book. And that also is a very important part of this particular book, because many Jews are really wondering, why would any Jewish folks even consider talking about the Hebrew Bible or Tanakh in relation to the New Testament? And one of the things that we made clear is that the New Testament was a Jewish book written by and large by Jewish authors. There were some debates about some of the gospel writers, as we all know, and written for a largely Jewish audience. It is a major source 
for Jewish history of the first and the early second century of the Common Era. And as such, a lot of what we're trying to do is not at all to convince the Jewish community that this is an authoritative text for them, because indeed, for both of us, for neither of us, is it an authoritative text, but to, to convince that community that it had a, was very much part of first century Judaism, and it was originally a Jewish book, and it's time to understand it in that context. And I like using the term safe. We try to make the New Testament safe for the Jewish community because we think, especially in an American context, which is such a Christian context, and neither of us is a big fan of the word Judeo-Christian, but it really is a Christian context that the Jews live in. So it is very important to understand the major texts of your neighbors. Yeah, I'd like that. It's, it's, thank you, Mark. It's, it's a sense of civility. Um, if we want our Christian friends to know more about Judaism uh, than current debates over the state of Israel and occasional production of Fiddler on the Roof and the Shoah, um, then we need to know a little bit more about our Christian neighbors than the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Um, so it's a sign of recovering a shared history. Um, even though we might disagree on what certain texts mean, at least we can see how those disagreements came about and find the logic in the in the arguments uh, that did not become part of our own tradition. That's that's respectful, and it's recovering part of Jewish history that's now lost to the synagogue. As I've been personally reading through the Old Testament with my own commentaries, um, I was I was looking at uh, Genesis, and your your book covers um, the creation account. And one of the lines that you go into detail on is around where God says, let us make man on our image. And coming from the, the Protestant viewpoint and growing up, that was always like, you see, that's the Trinity. That is obviously an example of the Trinity. And so I've always looked at it that way. But as you start to look at the Bible critically, and I started looking at other academics talking about that text, even within the Protestant tradition, obviously a Trinity wasn't even formulated as a doctrine until the third century. Though Jewish writers had no sort of concept of a, a triune God, they knew of one God. And so, well, that makes this question, well, what does the let us mean? And so in the, the commentaries I've been looking at, we're like, well, that's God kind of talking to the heavenly host, the angels and that type of thing. Um, but I was wondering if you maybe kind of elaborate and maybe share a little bit on that text, because that is, that again, talk about storyline. That has led to a huge storyline of Trinitarian doctrine in the Bible. And that's like one of the first proofs texts that a lot of Christians that will use, including myself, as a as source of like, see, Trinities in the Old Testament. I'll let Mark do the history, but I just want to say something about the Christian reading. I don't see where there's anything wrong with that. It's a matter of the lenses that you wear. If you put on Christian lenses, you're going to see Jesus from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Malachi. Um, uh, he's going to be there in the suffering servant, and he's going to be there in the Emmanuel prophecy. And, and he's He's there as, as one, of, one of the heavenly beings that visits Abraham, and he's there at the beginning of creation where the Holy Spirit's also hanging around. Because that's through Christian lenses. There's nothing wrong with that. If you take the Christian lenses off and you put on the lenses of an historian, or you put on the lenses of somebody who's, who's raised uh, from the rabbinic system, you will see other things. Yeah, and let me pick up on what AJ just said and extend it a little bit. Uh, it is also the issue of what Bible you're reading. Please remember 
that the Jewish and the Christian Bibles are fundamentally different. So I'm not going to go into all the differences between the Protestant, the Catholic, and the Eastern, the Eastern Church Bibles. We're just not going to go there. But the bottom line is that if, as a Christian, you are reading, and I'll right now intentionally use um, the Christian theological term, the Old Testament is part of the larger Christian Bible. I mean, it is, it almost becomes an obvious reading that the, let, uh, that the plural of let us needs to refer to Jesus, who is referred or needs to refer to the Trinity, which becomes important in the shorter second part of this two-part work. So there's nothing at all strange about it. On the other hand, if you're reading this as a Jew, uh, the New Testament is simply not there. You're reading a shorter Bible, so you don't have that whole context to fill in that particular us. And instead, then what you're going to do, or at least what I would do as a critical Bible scholar, you would mention that particular context earlier, is to recover the Bible as an ancient Near Eastern text. So here, let me just stop for a second. And there are all sorts of books which are called the Bible and the ancient Near East. And as one of my colleagues once pointed out, there's something a little odd about that word and, the right word, and there are some books which use this title is, the Bible in the ancient Near East, because the Bible is one of many ancient Near Eastern texts. And as such, of course, there are some fundamental differences in that. I'm going to phrase this pretty carefully. Much of the Hebrew Bible is monotheistic. A lot of how a lot of uh, figuring that out is going to depend on exactly what you mean by monotheism. And some people have actually described monotheism, you know, in terms of downsizing from lots of different deities <laughs> to a single deity or a single. A very powerful deity who has the attributes of many of these other deities. You know, but the downsizing is never really complete. So that, for example, if you look at the first two chapters of the book of Job, there you have God sitting in heaven with a heavenly council. One of the counselors in Hebrew is called Hasatan. So even though this is often translated as Satan, given the structure of the Hebrew language, that cannot possibly be a personal name and is a common noun and is the adversary. You know, and God, you know, God talks to them. God deliberates with them. Part of what makes this deity in the Hebrew Bible you know, monotheistic is even though these other deities or semi-deities seem to exist, God is much more powerful than all of them. The God of the, of the Hebrew Bible always has the last word. And this is no different than what you have in other ancient Near Eastern documents where you have a high God, and that high God will often talk to other deities, you know, will confer with them, will take into consideration what they have to say. And that is really what is going on in Genesis chapter 1 with the let us make man, na'aseh'adam, in the Hebrew, that God is conferring with his royal court. And by the way, this was very well recognized in early rabbinic tradition. 
and also say just as a sidebar, why context and grammar and good understanding of ancient languages is really, really important. Many people claim that this is a royal we. The royal we in verbs simply does not exist in biblical Hebrew. So when God says, Adam, let us make people, it cannot be a royal we. And I would point out, and here is why it's so important not to anachronize and to put, and it is important to put everything into its correct context. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible is full of texts which view God, the God of Israel in anthropomorphic terms. A great example, just read the first few chapters of the book of Ezekiel. There is an image sitting on a chair that looks kidmut adam, something like a person. So God looks like people, people look like God, and that is what is going on. And angels also look like people. Uh, take a look, the story skips certainly when you're in elementary church school. In the first three verses of Genesis chapter 6, where there is a sexual liaison between the children of Elohim, of God, and the daughters of men. Well, I mean, the reason they seem to get along so well together is that you know, they, they, they sort of look like each other, shall we say. So that sort of puts the context of that particular verse together. And, you know, and that brings up another question, because there are these very mysterious odd passages like that one in Genesis 6, where you have the angels or the sons of God being with human women, and then giants are kind of born, Genesis says. And there are these passages that are like this. And I sit, I sit there, and I'm like, I'm not even sure what to do with that. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, how else do you explain giants? I mean, we know from other biblical passages that the God of Israel is viewed as, you know, a good example of that is the dedication of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. God is sitting on a kisei ram vinsa, on a huge throne. Well, I'm not imagining a tiny deity sitting on a huge throne. That and other passages suggest that God is, is huge. So, you know, if huge, ange, if huge angels, you know, because they sort of have to be near God, they're in the same uh, orb or sphere, cohabit with humans, of course you'll get giants. Do you have a better explanation? Okay, we're going to pause right here, and we'll continue this conversation with Dr. Brettler and Dr. Levine next time, as they share their insights into different ways to understand the doctrine of original sin, Sabbath day observances, how we pick and choose what biblical laws to follow, and how we see examples of monotheism and polytheism expressed in biblical texts. So that's next time. And as always, I want to share a few takeaways that I want to remember from today's conversation. Number one, growing in empathy means becoming more open to learning about how different religious traditions understand the Bible. Learning about different religious interpretations of biblical texts can help us all gain deeper appreciation for the Bible and different scriptural insights to help us with our own understanding. Number two, we need to acknowledge the biases and filters that we all bring to the Bible, even when trying to study the Bible objectively. Dr. Levine and Dr. Brettler mentioned that we all have different lenses that impact the way we read and understand the Bible. And the lenses can change based on historical analysis, religious study, or our own personal readings, which are informed by our own experiences, culture, and time period. And number three, God gave us brains to analyze the Bible. Sometimes we might feel a little bit resistant to critically studying the scriptures. 
and feared that it might hurt our theological or religious thinking about it. We need to remember that God gave us minds to think critically and to ask the hard questions. The more critically we read the Bible, the deeper our understandings can become. So that leads us to this week's question. Dr. Levine and Dr. Brutler talked about the importance of understanding how different religious traditions interpret the Bible. Have you ever read or watched a documentary to understand how different religious groups understand the Bible? A religious group that's different from your own? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help the show get more visibility. Thank you so much, and let's chat next time. Take care.